Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of the Lighthouse Writing Community to a full year of literary support and involvement at Lighthouse. This fellowship honors the great Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education, that much of our most meaningful education comes from literature, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. Poet Kim O'Connor was the recipient of the 2013-2014 Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship. Kim's fellowship culminated with a public reading and celebration on October 4, 2014, where she shared the fruits of the project she had worked on over the course of the year with an appreciative crowd in the Lighthouse Grotto. Thanks for coming out uh, to help us honor the 2013-2014 Alex Maxine Bowie Fellow, Kim O'Connor. My name is Dan, and I'm Lighthouse's creative curator. Uh, The Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship sponsors a member of the Lighthouse writing community for a full year of literary support and involvement at Lighthouse. This fellowship was formed in the honor of the great uh, Alice Maxine Bowie, who believes everyone has a right to a meaningful education, that much of our most meaningful education comes from literature, and that the world benefits from hearing stories. While Lighthouse is always... Yep, yep. Let's give it up for stories. Stories, everybody. While Lighthouse has always emphasized accessibility, this award offers a depth and consistency of involvement to the fellowship recipient. The year-long award period not only engages the writer in directed literary activities, but also allows for full immersion in a project or body of work. The fellowship includes four eight-week workshops per year, or the equivalent in four-week workshops and half-day seminars, and registration, lodging, and board for the Grand Lake Retreat, or a juried, uh, juried or non-juried gold pass to the Lighthouse Lit Fest. Um, just very quickly, the fellowship requirements, application guidelines, and notes on the review process uh, can be found at the Lighthouse website, lighthousewriters.org. All right? So... Uh, We are all here for Kim, so here's her bio. Kim is a North Carolina native who moved to Denver uh, in 2009. She received an MFA from the University of Maryland. Before that, she was a high school English teacher. Kim's poetry has been published in Copper Nickel, Colorado Review, Hayden's Ferry Review, Inch, Literary Mama, Mountain Gazette, Story South, Tar River Poetry, Thrush Poetry Journal, and elsewhere. Let's give Kim a big round of applause. Hello, thanks for coming. How's this? Okay, thanks. Um, So, I have some poems. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Um, This is What Happens to the Soul from my mother who asked who did ask me. So I wrote this. What happens to the soul? It becomes in equal parts the strands of a mimosa blossom, the wool of a sheep, and the spikes of a cactus. Like snow, it melts, then snakes itself into groundwater. As we die, it evaporates, then hovers near the ceiling till someone who loved us opens a window, allowing it to float to a forest where it eventually rests in a grove of pines inhabits the spaces between needles. 
It becomes salt or cinnamon or paper or whatever it is that makes things shiny. Mirrors, coins, feathers. Gravity is caused by a compressed core of souls at the Earth's center. If you are good, it becomes river water. If you are not good, it becomes river water. That's the end. I meant to start by saying thank you for the fellowship. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was good. I did that on purpose. Um, but seriously, I wanted to thank Lighthouse for the amazing fellowship. Um, it it helped my writing in many ways, um, and I had the opportunity to teach a class before this um, before this reading um, that I offered as kind of part of the the end of the fellowship called "I Want to Be a Writer," but for for folks who want to write, but and there's a lot of buts for being a writer for, at writers of all levels and stages. Um, and just having the support of a place like Lighthouse was an amazing honor and felt it was a really powerful um, moment when Mike told me that I've been chosen and um, then taking the classes was even more incredible. And then I hired you. <laughs> then he hired me. That's unrelated to the fellowship. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so thank you. And um, the... I had this vision where I would say how each poem related to each class that I took, but that seemed tiresome. But I will say that this this poem called Origin Story I took with Amanda Ray, um, who's a fiction fiction writer, uh, a class during Lit Fest called Mooching from Monroe, and we, meaning Alice Monroe, and we talked. She talked about this idea of inherited memory, um, where you, as a writer, could you could inherit the memories of people in your family without actually having heard these stories. And so that in combination with a couple of other classes I took gave me this huge permission to now have all these inherited memories, um, which is awesome. So this is called Origin Story. The hummingbird tells me my great-great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess. That's where I get my long, dark hair. That's where I get my power. My great-great-grandmother, the Cherokee princess, knelt beside a stream. She washed her face. She drank. She saw shapes in the water that told the story of her death. It would be violent. It would be soon and quick. She was scared. She breathed there a while, got up, and walked away. She began the day's work of healing the sick. She listened to the people's troubles and made broths from herbs or leaves. She touched their wounds and breathed quietly. It wasn't magic, but the wounds healed, usually. Every morning, my great-great-grandmother woke up expecting to die. She went to the stream, washed, and went to work. Every night, she was surprised. Her life went on like this. She lived 100 years. She died in her sleep. It was peaceful. It was slow, slow. She wondered, as she grew, grew older daily, if by seeing it she'd stopped it, or if she'd seen it wrong, or if it's happening in the water was enough. Not even the hummingbird can tell us that. So once I was inheriting memories, I was free to do whatever I wanted, including making up alternate and past lives for myself. So these, um, these next poems are from that, from that stage. I also took the hybrid genre class, just so you know, so <laughs> I recommend it. Not present time. 
When the student psychic tells me I live as if I'm living in a snow globe, I know it's because I'm living in a snow globe. First she said fishbowl, then she revised. When she says she sees me in maybe a jungle, somewhere tropical, with a backpack, lost, I feel afraid as though I'm there. It's because I'm there. When she tells me I was a London street rat, I think it's getting a little too Dickensian. But then I'm hungry, dressed in dirty rags, watching wealthy people pass without noticing me. See, I'm in a snow globe. It's even snowing. The cobblestones are slowly growing white. Then I'm in a war, the civil, she decides, meaning the American one, moving through fields of the dead, feeling low-grade panic. This is where my fear comes from. Not present time, here where I have enough to eat in my own MacBook Pro. Here where I can't compose an acceptable sentence about the just-released photographs of 11,000 Syrian dead, where other photos of the refugees prove something about helping and helplessness. Where even if I close my eyes, I see the sunburned kid from the ski slope, waiting for, then starting at the sound of his father's car horn, get in the back seat, and gaze at me as the father begins to yell in the rearview mirror. His snow globes, a slate sob SUV. I'm standing there under a white sky and a white wind, watching him disappear and not saying anything. This is called Early Pleistocene Horses. Pleistocene era was one of the ice ages. So long ago, it can't be properly spoken of. I was there, and a human in it, a woman. Ice stretched so far and wide, the horses had hardly any room to run. The horses ran on ice. I rode them nightly in the ice air, though my father told me not to. My hair, of course, streamed behind me like the horses' tails. We were cold all the time. I was the great-great-grandmother of Eve, even older than that. The horses were wild. I did what I wanted and died very young, like everyone did. The sunrise was cold as the sunset, and noon was no warmer. There were no words, though, for these noon, sunshine, wild horses. There was only my breath visible in the wind all the time, the live thing underneath me holding me up, the live thing beating in my body, in time, these things happening in time for the short, bright time that they lasted. This is called Every Day My Grandfather Burns Down His House. Do I need to say the title again? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> Every day my grandfather burns down his house. He lights a cigarette. The couch catches first, not bursting, but smoldering. He begins to feel warm. The rug under his feet, already speckled with ash, is next. Fire spreads to the curtains, and then it's all at once. Glass oozes from the panes. The house is a rose of flame. My grandfather is in it. It lasts most of the day. My grandmother returns with a plate of biscuits. They sit and talk. I run in with my cousins. We're in our bathing suits, begging to go to the lake. He takes us, watches us jump in again and again. We stay underwater as long as we can. When I surface, the air sparkles. But at last we have to go up the long stone stairs to their house where dinner waits. Little by little, there's nothing left. 
He opens his eyes to faint smoke rings and takes out his lighter and another cigarette and lights it and waits till tomorrow. So this poem is out of the the hybrid genre class. It's like a prose poem um, and kind of an essay. And um, my husband's a lawyer, and he said one night the phrase, there's no correlation between certainty and accuracy. So just because you're sure about something doesn't mean you're right. And I thought that was (laughs) fabulous. And this is the title of this poem. No correlation between certainty and accuracy. When my, when my great-grandmother died, she returned as a cat that my father later shot at. My mother was sure it was her because of the color of its fur, bright orange, like a sun a child had drawn. My father was sure it was not her. He did not like cats. Rather, my father did not consider the fact that it could have been her. The idea never crossed his mind. As a child, my great-grandmother had orange hair, hair the color of the cat's fur. The cat walked up the back steps, looked at my mother, and sat down. My father shot at the cat, and it disappeared. My mother never saw it again, though she looked for it. If asked, she will still express dismay about my father's behavior. He has never liked cats. Furthermore, he has never allowed stray or strange animals to remain on his property. Black snakes, distant neighbors' lost dogs, moles, squirrels, a family of skunks, and once a horse in the empty swimming pool, it was winter. All of these have been thrown into the woods, chased off, poisoned, shot at, or actually shot. The horse he had to call the law about. They brought a bridle and a trailer. She told me about it a few days after the funeral. If you see any cats, she said, don't chase them away. (laughs) This poem is called Last Moment on Earth. You may have noticed I sometimes write about death, <laughs> dying, and um, poets. Um, I was imagining what if your last moment on earth was a whole bunch of moments from your life. So that's where this came from. Last moment on earth. Two girls in summer dresses are riding their scooters straight toward me. Morning edition is playing farewell transmission. My yoga teacher is saying you're not a body, you're a light within a body. A jar of tulips is sitting beside a plate of bread. My mother is kneading the dough. Listen, outside the wind is blowing. Someone is setting up the wind chimes and now they are ringing. I am in kindergarten and my ponytail is swinging. I'm kissing my husband for the first time. His hand is under my shirt. My daughter is growing inside me, and she is exiting. She's a wet brown rose in my arm. Arms. The nurse is drawing my blood, and I am bleeding in the giraffe house at the zoo while my daughter cries. A teenager gives me a tampon, a kindness I will remember forever. My grandmother is taking me shopping at Kmart. I am slipping into warm water on a Greek island whose names I can't pronounce. For a moment, my lungs are all salt. I am lying on the floor of a townhouse smoking, The music is becoming the air. It's so loud, I become the music. It's April, everyone dying. The dresses are swirling, swirling. (laughs) 
I realized when I was getting ready for this reading how much I like the word swirling because I had to take it out of three other poems to use it there. <laughs> so that was really earned. Uh, <laughs> this is a very short poem. I was started writing letters to despair. So it's called Dear Despair. Dear Despair. The way the sun slanted across the grass this morning was a point against you. Last night's rain nestled among the blades, sparkled like sprinkled diamonds. The world's beauty is at once a salve and a knife. My problem is I want everything to last. So I have two left. Um, This second to last one is a little longer. Um, it's new and no one has read it um, it's the title is Kali 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 it's from my other poem you might have noticed I take yoga so my yoga teachers talk about Kali a lot and that energy she's the Hindu goddess of destruction and that energy attracted me in trying to kind of think about several Deaths that weren't a huge, they were part of my life this spring, um, but weren't exactly, I felt more like on the outside circle of them, but they were more, they were important. And so I wrote this and it has, it's for three people and it discusses these three deaths. Um, and as I read it, I'll just say who they are since you don't have the luxury of, of seeing this in front of you or using the internet to look stuff up. Um, so Kali, 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 for J.V. Brown, who was my da- grandfather, died March 7th, 2014, for Clayton Lockett, who was um, executed in Oklahoma, died April 29th, 2014, and for Violet, who was never born, who was um, what a friend of mine named the child that she and did the pregnancy. So one. Kali descended and asked me to describe her in three words. I said, goddess of destruction. She said, goddess of time and change. I said, that's five words. She said, I can't be contained. It's, it's okay to laugh, it's good. <laughs> it makes me feel better. A well-known fact. In a circle, there is no end and no beginning. If we assume now we are in a circle, there is now nowhere to begin. Let's begin with, it is morning, and I am standing on the sidewalk at the center of a thousand colors, a thousand textures, silk and brittle, petal and spike, wrapping paper, burst balloons blown over from a birthday party the wind ended, the trees shed leaves, unpicked up dog shit, miniature desert flowers, orange and blue-gray, and all the shades of green that exist in the world. Or the silverware clatters to the floor, and the toddler who has climbed back into the chair she just fell out of falls out again. Or rather, the chair topples over, not once but twice, then a third time, and the girl cries all three times, and her nanny puts her in the stroller and they leave, and then the manager asks me if I saw what happened. That chair is slippery, I say, or maybe it's the floor. Some things seem bound to keep happening over and over as the rest of us watch, astonished. 
Or we can begin with before the abortion, when they made Meg Google seven weeks pregnant and look at the photos, the hands and feet paddles, the heart a center darkness. Or Or we can begin with a memory of winter. My grandfather died. Clayton Lockett, ODOC number 206-409, died. But that was in the spring. It was in the news. Or we can begin with an ending. How else should summer end but in regret? What was I expecting? Well, I'll tell you, I wasn't expecting to find a dead beat in a zinnia. I wasn't expecting snow in September. Or we can begin in a dream in which I'm explaining to an audience the concept of the karmic circle. My actions affect your actions. It looks like a snake swallowing its tail, I say, but the tail's on fire, and so is the head. It's a ring of flame, that old symbol. Or I'm saying in a voicemail to Meg, the way the sun is filling the trees this morning is a trick. We have to steel ourselves against it. Dead bee in a zinnia, the zinnia browning but still pink, the bee a frozen model of itself. I thought I was finished with mourning. What am I, what am I even talking about? Two. Let's make a list. Wars, of course. Count the wars. One, two, three, four. And disease, Ebola, enterovirus D68, whooping cough, what else? Air strikes or not. Peace protests or not. Coal ash, radiation in the drinking water. The woman in Liberia whose whole family died and now her village shuns her because, but I already said Ebola. The woman who was held hostage for 11 years, was it 11 or 8? Was it 8 or 15? Kept in a cage who bore and cradled the child of her captor. The woman who, the woman who, wars. The daughter of the woman whose boyfriend beat her to death signs up for a writing class about grief. My daughter gets a cough and a bee sting. I call the 24-hour Walgreens. Wars, did I say wars? The wars are far away. The man with the sign that says Vietnam vet, anything helps, is always on the corner of 6th and Colorado. I turn down the music when I pass and hand in packs of trail mix, or I'm out so I wave and don't turn down the music, or I don't wave and try not to look. I have said all this before. The pharmacist says five-year-olds can take Benadryl. What a miracle the 24-hour Walgreens is. I would lie down on the floor and thanks, but I have to make breakfast. Three. But I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about myself and my own little griefs. I'm talking about griefs I witnessed or witnessed someone else witness. I'm not talking about innocence. I'm talking about the moment Meg swallowed the pill against the sound of her own voice saying no. I'm talking about the times I saw her name on my phone screen and didn't pick up because I couldn't take any more pain. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a specific murder that happened years ago and the final violent closing of that circle. I'm talking about the death of my grandfather, which was the death of a family. No, I'm talking about my own death and my dread of it. Four, there are a thousand ways to talk about what happened. For example, let's talk about rattling the bars. When an inmate is led from the cell block to the execution chamber, the other inmates might rattle the bars. Rattle the bars with what? I don't know. Hardback books? Spoons? Their bare hands? Whatever will make noise. On the sidewalk, I'm talking to Kali. Kali, when she swallowed the pill that went in the baby's life. Kali, when he steeled his face against death. Kali, when I bought the expensive flight to the funeral. Kali, when they pulled the curtains closed. Kali, when she couldn't bury the body. Kali, when we stood at the grave and couldn't cry. 
Really? All this will happen again? Five. We might begin with three seasons, three deaths, none of them mine. After my grandfather died, his mouth hung open as if he was astonished at his own absence. After he died, someone started a fire. After the execution, I stopped listening to the news. It was a great excuse since I don't like the news. Instead, now in the mornings, I walk around the block. Kylie, I have prayed for you to make me an orphan. Kylie, I have begged you to leave me alone. Kylie, because of you this morning, the sidewalk is scattered with ribbon and petals and glass. This is the last one. I stood at the graves of my grandparents. I stood at the grave of my, graves of my grandparents and saw that I was full of power. I stood next at the spot where they'd stood many times at the graves of their grandparents, holding hands, clutching silk flowers. I imagined a flood, and it flooded. I opened my mouth, and a song arrived. We were up to our eyes in lake and music. Lake and music filled our lungs. No one could tell her tears from the raindrops. The very air was wet. No sound but the song of water. Then stop, I said, and it stopped. My family was quiet. Our clothes dripped softly on the grass. It was time to go, so we went. Now you, imagine a flood. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. That was, that was incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, so now I want to invite Andrea Dupree up on the stage. She has some things to say about the, uh, this next fellowship round. Yeah? Sure. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Sure. Sure. Wow. Um, Kim, that was astonishing. Um, we, we haven't said much about the actual funder for this fellowship because at first um, she really focused on being anonymous. And um, since then she's moved away, but she's continuing to be involved. And she's not Alice Maxine Bowie. That is the name of her grandmother. Um, but she's somebody who spent her life kind of struggling um, and not feeling like she had the means to do all the things she wanted to do. And her grandmother gave her those means. And um, so she really wanted to give those on to other people. And when I heard Kim's reading, and, and there's another Alice Maxine Bowie fellow in here, Laura Bond, who's right here. Um, it just makes me grateful to hear your stuff however we get it you know i i feel like this is um like church for some of us to be able to hear the stories of people and the poems um of people who have something to say and have the courage to say it so thank you for that um So being in on the process is a mixed blessing. I was talking, and this is going to sound 
um, coy of me, or, or maybe bragging of me, but I was talking to George Saunders in the car when I picked him up, and he was talking about the 600 people who apply every year for the, for the Syracuse program, and they take six. And he said, you know, about 300 of them, yeah, no, just no. And the other 300, maybe, you know? And, and I feel like, I say this all the time to my workshoppers, and we do this, this periodic thing called willfully submit, and we talk about this a lot. I feel like I need to say what no means. And no really doesn't mean anything. It, it means if you applied for the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship and you didn't get it, it doesn't mean anything. Because once we narrowed down, there were four readers, I believe, for the Alice Maxine Bowie Fellowship every year. And once you narrow down to the half that really have a chance, it's like everybody deserves it. All of, all of, and this year I think it was maybe 60 or 70 people who applied. And there were 30 who I felt like they were just kind of checking it out to see if they could get it. And they weren't there yet, um, according to my opinion, which means really nothing in the world. But um, the others all deserved it. Um, And so when they weren't deemed the, the victor for this year, I really feel like, I feel like George and I agreed on this point (laughs) that it was a little bit random. Like, no, this person doesn't seem like they've been here long enough, or this person already had a chance to do X, which should be a good thing, but, but we're going to deem it like, oh, they already got their chance. You know, so there are all these things that go into it that really, um, don't mean a lot. And so I want to say to the people who applied and didn't get the fellowship, you totally deserved the fellowship. You really did. And even the funder who was one of the readers, she, I mean, she didn't say this, but one of the other readers said, I had to drink a whole bottle of wine <laughs> to say no to some of these because I felt like I just wished the number were larger. And I think that's, that's true for a lot of people. So two of the people who applied, who made it all the way to the top, um, one of them, I, I want to ask you to come up, um, is Lynn Schweibach, Schweibach, um, who everybody wanted wanted to get the fellowship to <laughs> but she didn't get it she's she's an honorable mention she's a writer who lives up north right in fort collins has some great publications and um is continuing to write and i just saw i think you're you're signed up for my online class so yay for me <laughs> um, so lynn could you come up and just And one of the other people we were all bewitched by, um, Shelby Kenny Lang, who I don't think I've even met. Oh, you're here. Yay. Uh, also just full of energy, full of talent, just gobs of talent, and, and also deserved, like Lynn, the fellowship. So, um, Shelby, could you come up?
So he's going to be reading in a couple weeks at the draft, which is a reading show we do every quarter. Um, so everybody come. It's two weeks from today. He'll be there, and we're excited about it. Um, now I want to pivot a little bit and talk about what yes means. Because no doesn't mean anything, but yes means everything. I really do feel this, that, that while no means nothing, everybody felt excited about the writer who got the fellowship. Um, she is deserving. She writes for the Colorado Independent. Richard Froud, who, who since got into medical school at like every place he applied and now is becoming a doctor in addition to having a PhD in writing and an MFA and everything else and being brilliant. <laughs> He came up to me once and he said, I think she might be a genius. <laughs> and um, don't quote me on that, though. Maybe we'll take that out of the podcast. Because he meant it to be kind of confidential. Um, so it's just between <laughs> just us. Um, he had her in a class. Other people who have had her in class have said the same thing to me. I haven't had the pleasure of having her in class, but I have read her stuff and I've heard her her readings. Uh, so our next Alice Maxine Bowie fellow in fiction is Tessa Cheek. She's going to come up and she's going to read for us. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> Well, hey, um, I'm I'm so humbled to to follow Kim. I, you know that feeling you get when uh, somebody says something and it just rattles around in your brain and you feel it in yourself. I I had that, and I have to say, I've, I'm gonna move this up just a little, like a little, little bit. Okay, um, I shouldn't have worn the platform, so it was a mistake. Um, I want to say I'm so enamored of that last long piece you read. I'm obsessed with the idea that poetry can both report and interpret the news in a potent and compact form, and goddamn, you did that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I'm so grateful. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Lighthouse and Dan. You're the man. Um, it's, such a, it's such a privilege to have the kind of access to a community I've dreamt of for so long as a very lonely writer. And, um, you know, Dan says this a lot, but uh, it really does feel like Hogwarts come to this big old house <laughs> and uh, get, a little, get a little nook for yourself. Saw an 11-year-old writing in the bathtub the other day. That was good. Um, this excerpt is from a piece I'm working on. It's a draft. Um, it's a story that was once called Babe Babe Honey and is now called Black Hole. Um, the point of view character, I guess, things that you won't know from the excerpt I'm reading, is that there's this woman, Angela. She's, um, she's an immigrant. She grew up in Taiwan. And she lives with her husband and their four-year-old daughter, and she, she spies on their neighbors. It's not something she meant to do, but it's happening. And the neighbors have no curtains, so it's happening in a facilitated way. Um, and it's triggering all kinds of things in her, and it's affecting her family. And this story is really, ideally, <laughs> looking at what families can do for each other, the kinds of forgivenesses that we allow, 
what love can heal and, and what it can't, what it can bear. Um, this particular scene is with her husband, actually. He's a POV in this passage, and his name's Tom. And I'll just start reading now. Just stop talking about it and just read it. Um, Angela, come on out, Tom says loudly, over-articulating his mouth, adding a limp wave. He feels like he's been caught doing something he shouldn't be doing, namely talking to the neighbor girls. Even Ada has dropped her head, forces the running end of the hose directly into the clay dirt. Angela doesn't pretend not to see him, but she doesn't move at all. It's like looking at a portrait of her, all those reflected clouds in purple and orange coming out of her cheeks and brain. Pinned beneath them, she is impassive, like a river spirit, looking up through a thin layer of ice. Well, I've got to pick up my dog. We're still teaching her to play nicely with others. It was great to catch you. Happy digging, Ada. Liz leans over, down across the fence, folding at the long at the waist and exposing the freckles across her shoulders. She runs a hand over Ada's downy head. Then she's off down their back steps, whistling into the alley. What was that all about? Angela is leaning now in the open kitchen doorway. Saw me fixing your bike, said Tom, heading back to his bowl and bubbles, hole-seeking. Angela has been home since Tom lifted the wheel off the frame of her bike, doing her a favor. We watched the back of, she watched the back of his neck turn pink in the last of the sun. She watched the neighbor girl approach, speak like a friend to her four-year-old daughter, flirt, yes, that's the only word, flirt, with her husband. She says nothing while Tom finds the tube's leak, holds a thumb to it, casts about for his cloth and patch kit. Well, what should she want? The neighbor girl? Tom tries to open the patch kit with his teeth, hands still marking the spot of puncture. He looks towards Angela, but she doesn't help. Yeah, the legs, Angela says, following this with a dry laugh. She saw me fixing the bike, wanted to say hi to Ada, I guess they're friends. Asked for some help with her own bike, says Tom. What kind of 20-year-old can't fix their own bike? The kind that never learned how or married me first? He winks at Angela, opens the box at last. Mama, this mud is so sucky, says Ada from behind a large poppy. I know, baby. Your ba and I are picking up good dirt this weekend and we'll plant some. Angela breaks off in a kind of swallowed scream. Tom drops his tire in the tiny piece of sandpaper he was treating it with. He sees how the hose runs a tight, straight line from the house spigot where Ada, to where Ada once played. Now she's up to her hips, her literal goddamn hips, in mud. Baby, just climb out to me. Angela crouches at the edge of the wet circle around Ada, reaching. This seems ridiculous to Tom, who walks right towards their baby girl, steps into the flower bed, and sees his leg disappear up to the knee. Jesus fucking Christ, it's quicksand, he shouts. Tom works his hand under Ada's impossibly tiny armpits and pulls like hell. She's not coming out. Don't curse in front of Ada. In fact, don't do anything. Neither of you do anything. (laughs) Angela's voice sounds mean. Tom can read it, registering all across Ada's face, but like the champ she is, Ada doesn't cry. Okay, okay. Lay back with your arms out like a snow angel. Angela's mostly talking to Ada, who complies. Tom just sort of falls back onto his ass on the patio. Puff up your belly, baby. That's it. Angela wraps her small hands around Ada's smaller wrists and drags the girl out that way, across the plain of the mostly stable earth. She scoops up her baby, who smells so much like wet sand, like damp earth where the beach meets the roots of plants beginning, like fear. Ada cries steadily, silently. 
that's all right, that's all right. Such an adventure, but hey, now you're ready for the African wild. Angela bounces in on her hip and plops her down by the kitchen door. Okay, help Mama get these muddy clothes off you. Tom turns to see the two of them wrestling with Ada's pink overalls. Angela ends up lifting her out entirely for a single hilarious moment. The tiny overalls stand on their own before slopping into a wet pile on the slate. Let's put a little ice on those wrists while Mama runs you a bath. How about that, honey? They vanish into the kitchen. It takes the maximum of Tom's strength and a firm hand around the hose to awkwardly pull his shin out of the sandy mud. How the fuck does a thing like this happen? It's obviously the hose, which he gives a hard yank to unearth. Nope. If either Tom or Angela had been crouching with her, their eyes would have widened like Ada's to see how the water dug a hole ahead of the hose. How suddenly, when that hole was about a foot deep, something changed and the earth began to suck it in, voracious. At first so slow you could hardly tell, then faster and faster, looping in the sticks around it, Ada tested a hand, suction alert. She noticed that she was sitting a little deeper in the mud than before, then much deeper. It's a 20-foot hose, and in the end, Tom just closes the spigot, gets the garden shears, and hacks the death root off at ground level. He throws the rest of the hose, his one remaining shoe, and Ada's irredeemable overalls into the unlocked dumpster behind the house. So that's how it is, he counsels himself. Your baby girl finds a black hole in the garden and you feed it most of a rubber snake, a father's shoe. Before going inside, he jumps in place a little, claps his hands. He will protect them. Nothing, nothing will hurt his girls. He will be vigilant, unflappable, mighty, protection's perfect form. He still feels himself worrying, feels himself juggling, feels the inexorable pit at the edge of the garden suckling his left shin bone. Thank you. Thank you, Tessa. And welcome to your year-long fellowship. That's awesome. Woo! Um, Thank you, Kim, um, and everybody for coming out. And uh, have a good night, everybody. Thank you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.